What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. This Asterix episode, we're going to go behind the scenes with some more cool stuff. But first, a shout out and thank you to our sponsor of this episode, Freeze Eastern. Thank you guys so much for all your support. Now, coming up next, we've got a guy that's coming on. He's a formal naval officer. He's an award-winning entrepreneur and technologist. He is like working through some crazy cool autonomous drone technology that is helping to paint a 3D picture for helping us as rescuers before we ever go into any scene. It is amazing. So please welcome our next guest and what he's doing to help the star industry, Mr. Ben Williams. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today, we have an episode of The Asterix. I love this because we get into fine details of what others are doing to help the search and rescue community. So today, I've got Mr. Ben Williams, who is a prior U.S. Naval officer. Thank you for coming, sir. How are you, Ben? Good to see you, buddy. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, let me throw this out there as well. You're an award-winning entrepreneur tech technologist. God, I got to make sure I got that one right. <laughs> and then you're currently working with a company called Exeans uh, Technology, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. As long, yep. as long as I said that right, I don't want to, that, that'd be terrible if I said it wrong. <laughs> so anyway, well, welcome, man. I, I appreciate you coming on. This is going to be good. And one of the things that, that you and I got connected with is the fact that you're running uh, with drones and how like drone stuff is helping with the search and rescue community to help yeah. us before we have to go into whatever it is we're going into. So that's freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, a, it's a really fascinating way to bring technology into something that is an inherently human, you know, uh, endeavor, right? Like trying to save people, trying to keep people safe. Uh, doesn't always make it obvious why technology is important, but if you can get enough information to go in a little smarter or, you know, spend a little less time in a dangerous environment, that's all good. Yeah, man, that's what I'm talking about. Plus, you know, like if, it, if it's ever like way out and about, like, I don't know, 150 mm-hmm. miles offshore, maybe I don't need to go quite yet. Maybe we need to, yeah. instead of sending a full C-130 crew, we can just send a drone. I'm just, right. I'm going to throw that out yeah. there. I'm just going to say, you, know, you never know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that that actually is an important piece, right? Is like search and rescue work is expensive and it's sometimes hard to uh, justify when when you're in between rescues, people look at the budgets and they're like, wow, it's expensive. And then, you know, when it happens, they're like, great, glad we have it. We should have more. And then when the rescue's over, they're like, eh, (laughs) maybe that budget is better used up. So, you know, (laughs) to the extent that you're able to optimize those, those costs, like make it make it cheaper, but still capable, that ends up, I think, uh, setting up those teams for better success, right? Making sure you have more of these you know, uh, units and making sure they're resourced enough and able to succeed 
know, without without the same sort of high level of cost, you know, maintaining, you know, a bunch of large airplanes and really expensive uh, air systems, that sort of thing. Right on, right on. Well, I'm excited to get really deep into this with you. But before we go that way, I need to learn a little bit about you. How the heck did you get into this? So let's start with a little background. Where you're from, yeah. U.S. Navy officer, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, get, bring us into that. Absolutely. So I uh, grew up in uh, New England in southeastern Connecticut. Um, yes. Went to, uh, you know, went to uh, UPenn for undergrad. I did ROTC there um, and track and field and all kinds of other fun activities. And then uh, I got my commission uh, right after uh, I graduated, which uh, in turn was about um, about four months before 9-11. So, um, you know, went right into the right into the mix there. Um, I did a few uh, a few tours over in the Middle East with uh, uh, with the Navy. And, um, you know, as a result of that, I did uh, both very sort of hard technical work. Um, my second tour was um, in the in the nuclear power world on an aircraft carrier, so I went through nuclear power school and all that jazz. Uh, but on my first tour, uh, I was a surface warfare officer on a, on a cruiser, and I ran um, some small boat teams, um, which were called VBSS or Visit Board Search and Seizure. And so those were, you know, I think five meter ribs that had, uh, you know, anywhere from six to twelve people on them. We would, you know, jump on ships and do inspections and all that kind of stuff. So. And in the uh, in the the typically understated U.S. military uh, way of saying things, um, if uh, if they were shooting at you, then it became non-compliant uh, boardings. In which case, we would uh, we would beg off for uh, for the you know, spec ops or some of those folks. But we worked with a lot of Coast Guard folks, um, learning how to do boardings better, since that's the bread and butter for uh, for the Coast Guard. So. Uh, we uh, we borrowed heavily from uh, from you guys. <laughs> nice, very nice, very nice. Well, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have to ask this because I, I do have to ask everybody. But did you ever have any rescue anything while you were in the Navy? Mm -hmm. I know that's not quite the bread and butter yeah. of the Navy, but you never know. <laughs> I've had some pretty badass stories come it's on true. here. So, what about you? Have you had anything? So we participated in um, the uh, disaster response for Hurricane Katrina. Um, and nice. off of the coast of New Orleans, you know, we, uh, the, we, the, the aircraft carrier, me and my 5,000 best friends, uh, all, uh, anchored off the, uh, the coast there. And, um, what we did was we were basically providing a logistics hub just offshore. And so since there was, uh, such a destruction of infrastructure, it was hard to get, um, water and food in and people out. So. You know, the, an aircraft carrier has a lot of uh, a lot of helicopters on board as well, and we can be a staging point for refueling other helicopters and you know all the logistics therein. So we were down there supporting uh, basically flight ops to get in and out um, of the disaster zone. And um, and one of the crazy things there is um, if you're if you're familiar at all with how uh, large ships like that work. Um, you need, you have these water intakes basically that bring water in to cool down the, the machinery and especially yep. the reactor. And uh, in that case, there was so much debris from all the destruction in New Orleans that was flowing down the Mississippi River that those vents kept getting clogged with like pieces of house and trees and silt and like dead animals and just all this crazy stuff. And so we had to continuously shut down 
you know, one at a time of these things and like let the stuff fall off and, you know, get, go back get, you know, towards the bottom of the water or drift away before we then activate it again. And it was just a, like a very visceral reminder of how much destruction was happening upriver, even though not visual line of sight for us, you know, sitting offshore, but even there it was such, such destruction that it was, you know, coming, coming into our operational picture that way. It was really, it was wow. crazy. So, Dang. Yeah. Man, you know, I, I actually never even thought of that. Uh, that that's that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, everything yeah. that was got flooded and smoked is everything's going down rivers. Everything's going to the yeah. Gulf of Mexico. Yep. Holy cow! Yeah, really <laughs> Dang. So what? Yeah, I mean, and you know, navy ships get called in sometimes to do uh, search and rescue stuff, but really that's the the providence of um, of coast guards and you know, uh, you know, other res response groups, like, you know, other search and rescue. So we didn't do a ton of that, but, um, but every now and then you get, you get some of that stuff for, uh, especially smaller Navy ships that sort of are, are nearby something and go and help out. Right on, right on. You know what? That's a rescue story right there. That you just, yeah. you just helped a major, major disaster. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, that's funny. All right. So now let's, let's come into the entrepreneur side of things. What mm -hmm. do, are yeah. you building something? You created something. What, what are we doing? Yeah. So, you know, XN is a, a software company that is uh, focused around the intersection of high accuracy, rapid mapping um, in the industry. It's called mobile mapping and uh, the intersection of that kind of mapping and autonomous robotics. So um, self-contained navigation of robotic systems without input from people. And this is a really critical point because our sort of future vision is that in order for a system, an autonomous system to be useful, you have to be able to trust that it will be uh, functioning autonomously without your input for a decent period of time. Otherwise, if you just have continuous oversight, you may as well not have it be autonomous, you should just pilot it. And so to specifically break the tether between single operator, single system, you need to be able to trust that it will be functioning successfully autonomously in a lot of environments. And so as a result of that, we focused on building a self-contained autonomy engine. And that means you don't require GPS, you don't require communications, and you don't require off-board what we would call fiducials or like um, sort of links in the environment where you say, oh, I'm like street signs in, a, in an area. And so in this kind of context, you can go you know, we got our start in underground mining where you have just, you know, blasted a part of the mine. And so it is inherently a new geometry. You don't know what the hell is going on down there. Um, it is dangerous because there's still rocks falling after the blast. Um, it is uh, operationally critical to know what has happened there so that you know what to do next. Do you bring in like a loader or a truck or do you, you know, set up to do another blast or, or whatever? And so in that context, you know, you want it to be faster, safer, and uh, further removed uh, operationally. So you send the system in, but it's underground, so there's inherently no GPS. Once you go around a corner, your communication link will drop. And there's, because it's a new environment, you also inherently don't have um, a functioning map or any idea of what's going on there. So in that context, you want it to go explore and decide for itself what is a safe flight corridor, uh, how long should I be exploring in all of these little tunnel areas to figure out what that full 3D model is, then come back home safely so that I as an operator have a full 3D model of that environment. And so if you think about that, that's, that's what we mean by self-contained autonomy. And that forms the basis for being able to trust these systems to function without human input 
over a longer period of time. And so that sort of forms the basis for when you're creating these 3D models, where else can you use these? And so that's where we start getting involved in infrastructure mapping or disaster response, or you know, how do you, um, how do you pre-map something so that you can respond more effectively in the case of an emergency or even regular operations as well. Okay, so you said pre-map. Let's start with that one. Mm -hmm. So what am yeah. I what am I pre-mapping? Because I mean, for the most part, let's use Google Earth, and I don't want to take anything away from yeah. you, all right? But you know, for yeah. me, it's like, oh, hey, jump on Google Earth, and we're gonna follow I ninety five, and that's because both of you <laughs> and I know that route right there, right? We're gonna Absolutely, follow I ninety five north because the hurricane <laughs> or whatever disaster the nor'easter came through there, and yeah. that's the way we're gonna follow. Um, so what are you mapping that I that I don't know? What am I missing with that side of it? So that, that's actually a perfect example, right? So there's there's a fair amount of well uh, well covered information for you know highly traveled routes, especially outdoors, especially associated with roads. The problem is that roads only cover you know half of one percent of the surface area in the U.S. So our systems cover the other ninety nine point five. <laughs> And so, nice. you know, the, the idea here, and, and, and I'm being a little bit uh, sort of uh, pedantic, but, you know, we, we also are doing 3D models that can handle indoors, underground, et cetera. So like uh, a great example here is if you, you know, let's take a, um, a fire department responding to um, a fire in an industrial zone. You probably have great maps for the roads all the way to the access and maybe even like a top down of, the parking lot and the exterior. So you might, you probably have a good guess where the front door is or maybe a loading dock or whatever. So you have, you have a guess, a top-down map or model for um, where you might be able to get in and out, but you don't really know, you know, how many stories it is or what the layout is inside or anything like that, right? And so what you would want to do <clears throat> in the case of a pre-map is you would go, okay, great. I'm going to do a, a high-res centimeter accuracy scan of that entire structure. And then what I will know going in is I'll be able to bring up, you know, Google Maps, or there's there's actually like an open geo standard that allows you to plug in these high accuracy models to a Google Maps or something equivalent. And then you can go, great, I'll you know set the GPS to get me to the front door. But then what I need is I need to be able to pull up this whole model so that I can plan where to send my teams in or where to stay away from. You know, if I know there's, I don't know, I, um, uh, like a machinery zone, you know, maybe you stay away from there uh, for like a fire response because it likely to be fuel or something else. And yeah. instead you might go, why well, the people are probably likely to be in this other corner. So let's focus there. Let's get in through the windows or the doors or loading dock or whatever. And so it gives you so much more uh, planning capability ahead of time so that you can try and, you know, put your people in danger only as much as they most need to, to try and get the job done rather than having them wander through an environment and go, hey, I found, you know, what appears to be a piece of machinery. I don't know if there's people here. I'll look somewhere else. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of benefit to going in armed with knowledge, even if even if you are gathering that, you know, a year in advance. Right. Things move around, whatever. But you have an idea of what that structure looks like. So that's kind of the big opportunity here for uh, for that for this specific use case. Right. Being able to pre map or pre plan for. Um, part of what the uh, disaster response might look like. Dang, that's pretty legit. I like that. Okay, so now let's go to the next one is the after response. So you've get, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, let's, let's throw a couple scenarios. Let's do mm-hmm. a hurricane because we talked about mm-hmm. a hurricane and Katrina coming through. Yeah. We talk yeah. about um, maybe some, oh, I don't know, um, twisters that come through the Middle East or the mid the Midwest. And then mm-hmm. we'll go as far as earthquakes on the West Coast. So now you've got aftermath disaster. How yeah. is it that you guys are helping out with that? What are we doing? Because right now, hold on, so, let me go even further yeah. with that question. Because right now, yeah. the star alarm is going off and it's going ballistic. And they're, help, everybody, right. everybody needs help like 20 minutes right. ago. So you've got helicopters going everywhere. You got EMS going everywhere already. So mm-hmm. where does that help me prior to launching? Right. So I'll caveat this with that I am I am not a search and rescue professional, but uh, I'll tell I'll tell you what what like the way that we think about those things, <laughs> and um, hopefully I'm not I'm not too far off in some of the specifics. But so uh, as I understand, what we've heard from um, from people operating in this world is that um, in many cases material response is not the problem. The problem is uh, logistics, coordination, and um, information. So, uh, or in, in the military world, we would call that like ISR, which is intelligence surveillance reconnaissance or like uh, into like real time intel. So um, the, the key thing that we or our type of systems provide in those contexts is, okay, you have what used to be the city map, but might not be that way from a functional perspective, right? There was right. a road, you know, Main Street was a, a two lane road that you could bring a uh, like a large uh, large truck um, you know a tractor trailer or whatever down that street um, but if the building fronts have collapsed and fallen across so there's rubble across that street all of a sudden not a way that you can bring stuff in and so if you then are able to create a rapid uh, model you know, let's say you do bring in a couple of these drones and just set them set them loose on an exploration zone and you get you know 10 20 30 square city blocks um, 3D modeled, that gives you a pretty good sense for where are collapsed buildings, where are areas you might want to focus, you know, infrared cameras on to look for people, what are the places that make sense to set up, you know, a uh, mobile hospital or um, a distribution center for water and food or comms or whatever. Like if there's if there's a building that still looks like it's pretty well intact and it's a little bit taller, Maybe you put a comms relay up there if you've lost cell or, you know, internet or whatever. You can start doing things like that. We can start planning how to most effectively uh, plan response. And that oftentimes means that you're able to just move things much faster. And instead of, um, you know, piles and piles of supplies piling up somewhere where you're like, I don't, I, we have all this stuff. We don't know where to get it to or how to get it there. You know that that often ends up being the uh, the hardest piece, and that's why organizations like uh, like FEMA exists, right? Is to try right. and coordinate local, state, and federal response so that it's you know it's a it's a logistics chain. And so um, information often underpins efficient response. So that's that ends up being kind of where we and companies like us come in is you know build that rapid 3D model, do a sort of more in-depth searches if there's you know, underground infrastructure or indoor infrastructure, you know, we could set a search volume around a parking garage and it will, it'll automatically search every floor of that garage, create a model. If you have an IR camera on there, it'll, it'll show detections of heat throughout the, throughout the facility. So there's a lot of ways you can use these systems to 
um, aid your planning and your execution of the response, which is really where we come in, right? We're not we're not going in and like grabbing people. We're not, you know, I guess you could deliver water or something like that, but really it's it's information, right? And that helps every other uh, element within the response function more efficiently, more intelligently, and more quickly. Oh, I, I'm on board with that too, because I, and I think about it from my own side of things is going in to an area like you're going to an unknown. You, you don't know what yeah. you're getting into and to have the knowledge of knowing what you're getting into is a major bonus and a major help. So yeah. um, when you're talking like parking garages and, and mm -hmm. whatnot, we're not just talking about drones that fly. We're talking stuff that goes on the ground. And so air, mm -hmm. land, sea, everything? Yeah. Or? So we, we've built the autonomy, the software sort of core to be um, what we would call hardware agnostic and mode agnostic. So which is to say, we've integrated on a dozen different drones and airframes. Uh, we've integrated on uh, quadruped robots, you know, ground robots that, that walk with four legs. Um, we're, you know, expanding to uh, broader capabilities as well. So in this case, you have some flexibility as an end user of, you know, what type of platform makes the most sense for me. If you're doing all sort of outdoor scanning where you, you're not really space constrained, you'll take a bigger, you know, a bigger drone, a heavy lift drone that might be able to carry, you know, 20, 30 pounds. And you'll probably put one of our systems and maybe like a high, a high res IR camera and it can fly for an hour. And it does, you know, this, this map of the whole area, but it doesn't have to go inside anything. It's too big of a drone. So then if you have stuff where you want to go through a parking garage, for instance, that is you know, partially damaged, but you know, still pretty passable, you probably will still use a drone there, but you use one of the smaller drones and it'll still do the full map. Um, if you're going into a narrower, more difficult, you know, constrained environment, you might use a quadruped. They can go into a building and explore it that way. Or if there's just a ton of dust and debris around where, you know, a drone, uh, the props might kick up too much dust and, you know, block access, then a ground vehicle might be better for that anyway. And so, you know, you get to pick and choose how you're applying these technologies uh, based on the environment, which is good. <laughs> you know, it's nice for have flexibility. Um, but yeah, so the, the core the core tech works uh, whether it's um, whether it's an aerial or a ground system. Uh, we just sort of set the mode differently. So one of the things you had mentioned. So I'm I'm going to go two extreme different scenarios. Okay, the first one I'm going to do is my scenario of U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmer. Right. So we get launched out and or actually boat missing or. Uh, yeah. an EPIRB is going off 150 miles offshore. So I know it's going to be a long yeah. way out there, but it's right. an EPIRB. So now we're just going out mm -hmm. for a search. So now I can mm -hmm. put it on a bigger drone, an airplane type mm -hmm. drone, send it out. Yeah. Your stuff will be able to take it, uh, take a look, get mm -hmm. infrared, try to find somebody in the water, do search patterns mm -hmm. based on program, or is it somebody like manually flying it and looking at a screen? Mm -hmm. How's that work? So it depends. Like this is, this is a good example of like, if you're if you're doing a large area search where you can maybe do a slightly higher elevation, you probably wouldn't even use our system. You would best be using a GPS driven, you know, fixed wing drone that can be up in the air for hours and hours and hours where, you know, most of the eVTOL systems are maybe an hour best. A lot of times your missions are shorter, like you know, 20, 30 minutes um, or even, you know, in, in our mining world, it's like five, 10 minutes. Um, and so, in, in the if you're doing a, 
in the, in the mining world, it's like oh, mining, form. mining. Sorry, I yeah. want to make sure I heard that right. Okay, because yeah. that was so, that's um, my next like question is going to be mining, like totally yeah. opposite spectrum. All right, keep going. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. So, um, so like that particular use case, I would be willing to bet that the the optimal is to have a a high quality uh, infrared camera that is on a fixed wing drone, but that is you know much cheaper than a C one hundred and thirty, and you might have two or three of them able to do you know, area searches and you're doing it at a slightly higher um, altitude. Maybe it's, you know, a couple thousand feet um, above, the, above the water. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what how you would operate that, but, you know, something like that probably makes sense because you're able to cover a large area. Um, you can still have a GPS driven so it can be autonomous in that sense. Uh, and you don't have to, uh, you don't have to worry about the, um, you know, someone piloting it the entire time. Um, nice. And you can also run uh, something probably like a, uh, like a, a filter for your infrared camera where it says, if you detect anything above temperature X, that is a possible detection, you know, queue up for a person to review it and they can decide whether it's, you know, whether it's relevant. Um, and then in that context, you know, one of the things that becomes super interesting there is if you, if you do this wide area search, you find something that you go, great, let's, that's enough reason to go out and uh, check it out. And then what you can start thinking about is, you know, what type of, uh, rescues. If it's just person in the water, then like our system, not needed. That's, that's you guys. <laughs> if, if however, it's like, let's say it's a, a large cargo ship and it is, you know, it's listing and you don't really know what's going on inside. That's a great opportunity to send a drone or a team with a 3d mapper on it to go, you know, run the inside. And then as a result of that, you can get a model where you go, okay, we've mapped 30% of the ship, but we know there's an inaccessible section based on the model that you might not, it's a little harder to, to make that, that calculus in your head as you're kind of running through the, the ship, right? Or, or even around the, the skin of the ship. And so being able to then take a, uh, take a, a like a digital model and, and perform analysis in real time, or maybe you just, you know, transmit it up to the, uh, up to the C-130 that, you know, you've got a guy on the screen who's going, okay, go this way, go you know, two decks down, make a right and you know there's an area that's inaccessible you get you get better data right and you're spending less time on what is maybe a sinking ship so <laughs> seems seems like probably a good uh, a good use case uh, in that way as well dang right on holy cow we're gonna divert real quick to thank our sponsor breeze eastern for over 80 years breeze eastern has designed and manufactured battle proven aerial rescue hoists winches and cargo hooks each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios, ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. Okay, so now you brought it up, mining. Mm -hmm. So yeah. mining collapses. You had mentioned it goes in and it, like after mm -hmm. you have your explosions and you're, they're digging yep. down, so they're blowing stuff right. up. So. Yes. rescue scenario comes up where either a there's a rock slide on the inside there's a collapse of right. something somebody gets stuck mm -hmm. and it could be either somebody's stuck or crushed you know but there's right. instability inside the mine yep. how am i using you guys to help expedite and or mm -hmm. set the rescue team up for success yeah so we we got called in for a specific uh, event here uh where we're we're not allowed to share the name and location wait, but wait wait hold on time out you're telling me you've already done this? This has already yeah. happened? Oh, Indeed. what? <laughs> <Nick>. <laughs> so it was it was pretty it was pretty crazy. Um, it 
when you have um, this particular type of mine has like multiple levels of, um, of tunnels and there's there's a lot of space in between those levels but you know they can still collapse you know the floor can collapse into the, the bottom of another one and that's what happened in this case the the rock in between two levels collapsed and so what had been a tunnel then just falls through into the, the uh, level below and so in this particular case uh, there were people trapped underground um, they were able to rescue a, a few of them but not everyone unfortunately uh, but where we were able to come in is that we basically overnighted a drone to them and then we did 30 minutes of training on the phone and then they went underground and they set an exploration volume underground for the area that they thought might have collapsed but they didn't know right they, there were no eyes on down there and so then they set the exploration volume and just said go and the system went in and self-defined its flight corridors and explored as much as it could and came back in this case with a full 3d model of the entire area that had collapsed both the uh, the layer of the or the the level of access and then it went down through the part that had collapsed and sort of peaked into the the next level down into those tunnels and what that did for them is it gave them an operational picture and said okay this this is the area that's been affected we know you know kind of uh enough where we can we can advance much faster um my understanding of how they how they would have done it otherwise is that you would advance very slowly down the tunnel and sort of testing to see if it's uh, steady. You know, the last thing you want is for your team that's going into rescue to then, you know, be part of a collapse or, or anything else, right? Right. So right. they, uh, what they told us is that we saved them maybe a week of time trying to like slowly advance down the down the tunnel. Again, I'm not an expert in that space, so that's just what they told me. Right. But you know, being able to have an, an operational picture there eyes on in within a couple hours is pretty awesome, I think under any, any context. And so um, that that was a great example for us. You know, people died, so it's not not like a, a positive story, but the technology was proven out in that case. And what that means is that for future collapses, uh, we kind of have a sense for how it might be used and we can get it out to people quickly. And there's been, you know, mine rescue boards and um groups that have said actually this is this is something we need regionally for like if there's you know 15 20 mines in a region definitely need one on call for you know the, the mine rescue teams or whatever and so you know that in the at the end of the day i think it'll be a positive thing for those teams even though you know the, the that particular story was not a not a fully positive one yeah I, i'm i'm sorry for the loss of the guys in the cave or in the in the tunnel it's that's not fun yeah. um there's you're right. So you said two things there that really stood out to me. The first one is you had a 30 minute conversation like Zoom or Teams yeah. meeting or just on the phone and be like, OK, this is how this stuff works. All right. Push this yep. button, push this button and then hit go. And they had <laughs> right. and that was a brief enough for them to go in and send the send your equipment in to get a full 3D yep. model of the inside. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yep. So you, I, I just got I'm going to make fun of my dad here for a minute. And I, I love my dad. OK, but. <laughs> Like I can't spend thirty minutes on the him on the phone with him to to like do an email or that, like Text it takes longer yeah. for me to do that than it did for you to teach these guys this stuff. And, and I love my dad. I was just, but dang, that's impressive. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Is that so? Is it that easy to use that you're just? It's yeah. What, I mean, what we've you know? yeah, we've had customers that. Um, that get up and running have run a mission within five or 10 minutes of, um, of us starting the training. 
um, you know, I, it, it takes longer to be an expert user, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yep. you know, we, when we that. deliver systems, we will do, you know, typically a, a day of classroom and a day of, you know, in, in the mine or on the, the construction site or wherever, like in, in field testing where they're running missions and we're talking about edge cases and how to best utilize it and all that kind of stuff. But the interface and the capability is designed inherently to be simple enough that you just say, define a high level mission objective and hit go and the system will you know, navigate itself in a safe way and it's best as best it can to accomplish the goal and so you know that's kind of the whole point of these systems is they they shouldn't be as complex as the system is itself the user shouldn't have to deal with that complexity the whole point is to remove thought processes from the person and put it onto the ai basically dang man the other thing that, that stood out to me that you mentioned is uh, this saved those guys a week worth of time. And, uh, you know, it's when it comes to search and rescue stuff, a week is a long time. They, and, yeah. and when you're talking, especially when you're talking like a golden hour, which in search and rescue mm -hmm. is, is like an optimal spot. But a lot of times it's right. so far. It's you, I mean, we're yeah. trying to hit that time. But a week is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. to save a team, a rescue team, an entire week to go in to get the possibility of somebody there, that's that's insane. That's that's fantastic. Like Yeah. So Yeah, it was it was it was mind blowing to us because you know, we also we had sort of considered it as like, yeah, you could probably use it for that, but you know, how would you test that in the first place? How would we, you know, figure it all out? And so it was really kind of just thrown into the mix and you know, performed great, but it was, it was a huge learning opportunity for us helping other mine rescue teams to say, well, look, here's how it has been used already once. Let's talk about, you know, does this fit in with your procedures? What would you be able to do faster or differently or safer in order to um, you know, prosecute your, your need here? And so it was, it was again, as, as terrible as it was, it was an opportunity to try and uh, help save lives for the next one for the future because you know, mining is still a dangerous industry. There's still people in dangerous situations all over the world for hundreds of different reasons. So every time you get out there and learn a little bit makes it more likely you're able to save a life next time forward. Dang. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a bit of a crazy Ivan out there and, and this is more my own curiosity than anything else. Right. Yeah. Cause we, we mentioned uh, going in underground. We've mentioned flying. I did mention a little bit of underwater. So could this technology and what you have going, could that have gone to Thailand to go in the cave underwater and then come out? Or am I just, yeah. am I way too off bit? Like, is that, is that crazy? Uh, <clears throat> no, it is. The core technology certainly could. The biggest challenge for that particular one is that they had to go underwater and then above ground through like dry, dry land, land tunnel, and then back underwater and like transit. So, you would need a system that was able to navigate above ground or underground, but on land and then underwater also. So I guess you could have sort of a, like a submarine with tank tracks or something, but um, so the, your, your challenge would not have been in, in our technology. The challenge would have been in a vehicle that can navigate successfully both categories. Um, so, but yeah, the, the core, the core tech, the idea is that you have some sort of a sensor it creates a, a model around itself in real time, and it uses that um, to sort of decide what what parts of its environment uh, are able to be navigated. 
And so, yeah, in, in theory, that's definitely doable. We haven't done much with the, uh, the underwater stuff because it's you know, expensive and difficult yep. and <laughs> all of those things, but. Um, and making things waterproof yeah, is really difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I was a Navy guy. I see what salt water does to things. So, yeah, right. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not in any rush to uh, to have a maintenance contract on that. Yeah, right. How many times are we painting the ship? Like, I mean, every day. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Oh, it's been... All right. So let me throw one more out there because I've had guys uh, on this podcast that have talked about different areas that they've had to respond to with uh, cliff or gorge or valleys. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, you know, this is great because my first thought mm -hmm. is, um, is Dylan Nelson and his dog Jacoby. And they went mm -hmm. out to do a search and they were actually searching for a, a, a dead body, which doesn't make the mm -hmm. heat signature easy, but they had a really hard time in the, in the slope they were going. So your technology, your drone can go out and give a full map and then give a, a possible yeah. reading if someone or something is down there. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, that's a that's a great example, too, is, um, you know, where we differentiate from a sort of off the shelf drone. Um, you can buy, you know, a couple thousand dollar drone that can go off and do a lawnmower pattern with GPS at some elevation. And that you can get, you can get those pretty cheap and it's pretty easy to use where a system like ours becomes really important is where you're not getting the information you need at 500 foot elevation. Instead, what you need to do is you need to get down kind of in the weeds, so to speak. So right. like flying below tree canopy or at night down in a ravine stream bed, whatever, in those cases, you have to navigate autonomously around branches and power lines and, you know, changes in the, um, in the topography, right? If you're going down in a ravine, you know, you, you might lose GPS. If it's a steep enough ravine, you might lose uh, comms link if there's enough stuff in between you and the drone. And so in those contexts, you set a search volume in those environments, it'll fly below a tree canopy at night down a ravine and give you that full 3d model uh, along with whatever, you know, camera feeds uh, you bring on there as well. And so those are great opportunities to uh, navigate areas that are very difficult to get access to, right? And so that, those are scenarios where a system like ours becomes really, really helpful because it's much, much faster. You get much better information more quickly, and you can use it in a lot of different, uh, different, um, you know, uh, environmental conditions. You know, nighttime, dusk, under tree canopy, etc. Right on. And it's it like for me, I'm thinking so much more of that. Uh, the guys from South Africa come on and talk about this place called Kloof Gorge, where they mm -hmm. actually have dogs that, that fall down and they're hearing them bark. And if you had a camera yeah. or something set up, maybe you get an infrared on them because they're still alive. And then yeah. you have an idea. That's good stuff. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, is um, like cliff rescue when you have mm -hmm. people that go on um, the, the shoreline of big, large, especially in like the Northwest, the U.S., you're looking mm. up Ireland. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the cliffs out there, Scotland. <laughs> yeah. And the, you have just such a large cliff of, of it's so, uh, it's just ridiculously far from top to yeah. bottom. So yeah, to have a, a way to, to, for a ground crew, maybe to go out and do a quick mm -hmm. search. That way yeah. you're not doing a full, full crew or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. to have you go no, absolutely. There. Yeah. Dang. Um, elevation wise, it, like mountain mm -hmm. rescue. So if anybody's going out, and having to do they get off trail how you said about an hour worth of time 
is is a is one drone or it depends on the drone that yeah, we're using? Depends on the drone, right? So the, okay. the smallest the smaller you get for a drone, the shorter the um, the flight time is basically for for our kind of system. Um, there's a the size, weight, and power requirements just kind of mean that physics takes over. And you know, for our, the smallest systems we do, your flight time might be like 15, 20 minutes. But if you're unconstrained uh, or less constrained on size, you know, you're using a slightly larger drone. It can carry a heavier payload, or it can just fly longer. So uh, it kind of depends on your your scenario, right? You might wanna you might wanna take a larger drone that does a like a broad search. And you find an area of interest where you're space constrained, you can't quite get in where you need to go. Then you might say, all right, we'll bring it back. We'll swap the system onto a smaller drone and then you go in and you, you go in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can use these in a lot of different environments. And like I said, the, the most critical or, or the way that we are most best used, because we're an expensive system. So it's not, you know, we're not something that is going to be on you know, every fire truck and every search team and all that kind of stuff. But where it becomes really, really helpful is in difficult to navigate environments, like very complicated, complex environments where, you know, there's a lot of trees or buildings or ruins or any of these kind of things that becomes super interesting because you're able to navigate those things um, autonomously. Uh, and that can save you tons of time. And as you say, it could mean the difference between getting there in time or not. Right on, right. On. You, you know what? Let me let me throw another random question. And I'm temperature wise, right? Mm -hmm. And it, one of the things that I thought about just a second ago was, uh, you fall into a canyon, but you fall into an ice crevasse of what yeah. what was once it, it closed yeah. up is now open. And you hear a lot of that right. skiers that go in, climbers that get in. Mm -hmm. Is this another spot where you could send this in? It, does temperature cause a problem for the system, or is it does it matter? I mean, temperature matters because it's a, um, you know, it's a, a mechanical and an electrical system. Um, in general, what we've found is that, um, you know, we're not we're not really a hardware company. We we function based to, based on the limits of the the drone provider and the, the sensor uh, packages that we we put on. Um, so what we typically have found is that it's able to work um, a bit below freezing, not way below freezing, but um, it affects battery life a little bit, you know, when you're, yep. when you're really yep. cold, you know, batteries often don't last as long. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can fly in those areas, you can navigate in those areas. Um, I think if you're, if you're a team that operates in those environments, you probably already have a sense for how battery life is affected or, you know, yep. you have to insulate the system a little bit more so that it generates a bit of heat to keep itself going or whatever, right? There's, there's ways to sort of mitigate it. Um, but yeah, I would say in general, there's, um, there's capacity to operate in those scenarios, but it's, um, but you have some constraints. Got it. All right. So now the, I guess a follow-up question to that would be because we were talking about buildings and I get buildings, you've got concrete, you've got thick walls that, that are very mm -hmm. apparent to like a software, like you're talking about, but yeah. ice and snow that has its own dynamic of density. Yeah. So is it, is it yeah. picking up and giving me walls of. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is where the ice is over here. This is where the snow is over here. Right. So in general, yes. The the hard part is uh, in any environment where you have transparent, hard objects. So really clean plate glass, um, clear ice, um, still uh, clear water. Those things can present interesting obstacles because they're not things that you want to navigate through, but a sensor... Uh, might look through them and not quite get that they're a solid object. 
And so those can be complicated under any circumstance. What we see in the real world, and especially in um, industrial or disaster environments, is there's very rarely a really clear, clean window. <laughs> you know, there's there's yeah. dust all over it, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, similar for snow and ice, like <clears throat> it's rare to have it be so clear that it doesn't really register. You can get like reflections and you get some weird returns. And so it's it's a little bit riskier. But in general, we've seen it function still pretty well. Um, but, you know, a lot of testing to do there still. No, that's cool. I mean, that's that's impressive just to think that no matter where you send it, it's going to give you a 3D map of whatever it is you're going into. And that, yeah, I like that. That's pretty cool, man. That, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. So nice. Very nice. All right, Ben. So th this this technology is is amazing. And what's cool to me, I think more than anything else, is it doesn't matter what I put the system on it's going to work and it's going to give me a 3d right. map. So if it's a little four legged crawly thing, if it's a little driver, mini tank, I'm going to call it mini tank. Cause I can yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to a, to a big, bigger drone with four blades flying through mm -hmm. whatever, it's going to give mm -hmm. you a 3d map of everything mm -hmm. that's on the inside of whatever it's right. going around, man, yeah. that's cool. Um, <laughs> how long does it take to get the system? So you go in and let's say it takes, an hour to do the entire uh, inside of the building or the structure yeah. or the canyon. It just it does a full thing for an hour. You bring the battery, the, the whole system comes back. We got to recharge it. Yeah. We send it out again. How fast is that uploaded? And can I look at that on the, on the computer real, screen real or whatever? It's real time. So like if you're within radio range, that point cloud is streaming back to your tablet. So even as the system is navigating, you're getting that, uh, that model in real time. And so if it goes out of comms range and it's not able to download real time, as soon as it gets back in radio range, it'll start downloading. So you'll be able to get an updated model real fast. And you know, there's post-processing um, that you can do on it to improve accuracy, but in places where like time is super critical and the, the sort of survey level accuracy may not be that important, your real time map is probably good enough to, uh, to operate there. Wow. Dang, man. <clears throat> and I think that's that's where it gets most interesting, right? Is like it's it's the creation of the model in real time or near real time. So you can make very rapid decisions out in the field. You don't have to upload it to a server. You don't have to worry about cell connection or internet or anything like that. You get it right on the tablet and you go, okay, I got the model. I can make the call. And you know, I might call back to a base or an HQ or something to get additional equipment or people or whatever, but I can operate you know, now I don't have to wait. Wow. Oh my gosh. All right. Additional side note question outside yeah. of rescue. What mm -hmm. else are you using this for? Because that, I mean, I, yeah. I can see the yeah. implications in so many aspects, but yeah, I love the rescue. That's what I like. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, so like our, like I mentioned, our, our start was in mining and you know, our, our most common use case, uh, Thankfully, it's, it's not search and rescue there. It's uh, regular operations, right? So after a blast, we go in and we you know, update the model or the customer updates the model with the, with the system. And um, they use that, you know, in some cases, multiple times a day to go in and like update the 3D model of, of the mine. Um, we use it also in places like um, infrastructure inspection where, you know, if you, if you have a bridge, for instance, and you want to run an inspection there, 
uh, right now you often have a, a truck that has a crane arm that goes out around and underneath. You have a, like a guy with, you know, double carabiner tethers to, you know, make sure he doesn't fall off and, and it's, it's expensive. You have to shut down traffic for a long time. There's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of time to do that. So if you instead can define a search volume and launch a drone, you can gather much of that same information in 10 minutes rather than six or eight hours. And all of a sudden, you know, you're able to do inspections regularly. You don't have to wait every five years to do inspection. You can do one every two months. You can get out in front of things where you go, oh, there's a little bit of leakage here with some water damage. Let's get in there and fix it. It's cheaper. It's faster. We avoid having to shut down the bridge or take it down or whatever. So infrastructure inspection is a really interesting one. Uh, wow. It makes survey teams so much more effective and so much faster. And so you get also things like in that same sort of what we would call the built environment, which is you know, construction, AEC, um, geospatial data capture, like all of these categories, um, faster, accurate models mean that you can operate more efficiently. You can do progress tracking for construction. You can say, you know, at the end of every day of construction, you do a, a rapid scan of the site and go, great. As a program manager, then I know what happened. <laughs> did, did the right teams install the right thing? Or do I have to go in and be like, hey, take out that duct work because you needed to wait for the electricians to put stuff in behind that. And so if you catch it, then they can just pull it out and put it back in later. Whereas if you catch it three months down the road, you're like, well, I have to take apart that entire structure and then redo it all, right? Which is hugely wasteful. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Uh, a lot of opportunities there too. Okay, so I, I threw my dad under the bus a little bit ago. I, I love my dad. I'm going to try it out one more time, all right? I love my dad. Yeah, yeah. So he, this actually, it, I think about him a little bit with this. And I can't, this has nothing to do with Start to Rescue. I just, it, the stuff that's going through my mind right now. So he does inspections on steeples, domes, and towers to a lot of oh, yeah. old churches and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. and one of the issues that he has, and I know this because I've worked with him, but is going up inside the steeple mm -hmm. like so now and you're coming into very confined areas but not only that yeah. but then outside so let's say it's a 150 feet up to get that close view and and to see what's actually going on um i can right. totally see something like this but like more yep. on the inside just because mm -hmm. it's so dark it's not like you can just bring a standard camera up there and be like oh right. yeah, let's let's see what's going on so mm -hmm. but, yeah no, those, are, those are great examples of you know you it's it's helpful to have a good model there so you can look at it after the fact and go, all right, I, I see. And before you even send a person up, you can send a system up and, you know, then you go, I actually don't need to send a person up at all. Everything looks great. Or I see one or two problem spots. So let's focus on getting up to those problem spots and doing, you know, non-destructive tests or whatever. And like, you know, target the problem areas rather than having someone haul their, so the, all their equipment up and just sort of, you know, spiral up the whole thing, which, you know, is, takes time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And time is money. We know it. That's right. We know it. Time is money, baby. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dang, Ben. This has been very informative. I, I'm I'm really excited about like what you guys are doing all the way around. Um I, I get to pull it back to search and rescue side of things. It's yeah. just a mining thing to save an entire team a week to get into a mining accident is just that's mind blowing to me. That's amazing. Yeah. So Freaking awesome. 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 Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I, I got one more question for you. And that is uh, advice for everybody out there that's either doing the job. Like what, what advice would you pass on with all of your information that you have? 
how they can use it or what you would do to help everybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I've been in a half dozen different industries uh, over my career. And I think what has been consistent throughout all of them is uh, the technologies change, but the people needs are pretty consistent. So if you, especially as a leader or a manager, you can learn to listen and to be very clear in your communication, <laughs> uh, that solves 80% of the problems right out of the gate. Uh, almost everything that's gone wrong at companies I've been at has been a, as a result of poor communication, uh, either either not communicating clear expectations or not listening when people are telling you about problems. And um, and I think, you know, I, I'm not even pretending I do particularly well at it, but even being aware of it helps me, uh, you know, sort of end run a lot of the problems that uh, that happened for us. So, you know, I think that's, that's probably the biggest one. I think it, people probably focus too much on like, how do I prove that I'm smart or how do I prove that I'm, you know, capable and I have all the skills and like, sure, that's important. Much better is, you know, work, what's the phrase, work, work smarter, not harder. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And if you can, you can get in front of the information and communicate clearly, listen, you're, <laughs> you're in good shape. So what you're saying is don't just listen, listen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh my gosh. Hey, Ben, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information. I really appreciate it. Uh, when we get a chance, knowing you're from New England, the next time the Patriots are playing and maybe I'm in town, maybe we'll just hit a game and get a beer together. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Just saying. Yeah. All right. I, I know you're like kind of <laughs> Philly guy right now, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, maybe I we'll spend, do it in Cooper. Spend... It'll be Philly and Patriots. I'm just throwing oh, that I mean, out That'd there. be pretty good. That'd be pretty good. Be a... I mean, look, I, I spent years in New England when the Patriots sucked. So I've, I've put in the time. So <laughs> Exactly. Exa Me too. And then you ride the yeah. highway, the 20-year highway. Right. And now we, yeah. now we suck again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Ben, this is awesome. Uh, again, I appreciate it. And uh, and I'll, uh, I'll catch up with you soon. All right? Absolutely. Good to meet right you. On. Thank you. You too. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Now, it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Breeze Eastern. For over 80 years, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured battle-proven aerial rescue hoists, winches, and cargo hooks. Each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. Hey, rule number 12, always pack a knife. Since I've been flying in helicopter rescue, one of the first things that we had as swimmers was knives. Loved them. Everybody carried a knife, pocket knife, switchblade, Leatherman, Gerber, Swiss Army, didn't matter. It was something you had on you at all times. 
in all of my gear in every deployment when I went down on the hook, I had a knife on me. Anytime I was hoisting, I had a knife on me. I've used it multiple times. But the day this rule came into effect was a training day. I was out doing some training on some cliff rescue operations. For the day, I was on the side of the cliff and I was watching over everybody that was taking the people on and off the cliff. Well, what I did is I ended up rappelling down probably about 20 feet or so, seven meters ish. And I would hang out there. I'd lock it off on my rescue eight. And then I put one wrap around my leg just so I didn't have to hold the rope and make sure that if it popped out of the rescue eight, I wasn't actually going anywhere. Well, now the last hoist comes in for the day. They're coming to get me off the rock. Guy comes down, does a perfect hookup, gives the ready for pickup and clear to move away from the cliff. As we're moving away, the first thing that I forgot to do was unwrap my leg from the rope. So now as we're moving away from the cliff and raising up, the rope is coming with us. The guy in the air saw what was going on, decided to give a little slack. Well, my leg, because it was wrapped in the rope, I ended up upside down. As soon as that happened, I reached into my flight suit, grabbed my knife and cut us free. The entire scenario was 100% my fault. It was a great lesson learned that day for me and everybody else during our debrief. But that's where rule number 12 came from. Always pack a knife.